The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. A very warm welcome, everybody. This is Squawk Box, the Bank for International Settlements, telling CNBC exclusively clarity will be the key to rate normalization, although investors may not be ready to hear it. There is always this tension that financial markets uh, want to anticipate events. Uh, but in this case, uh, what central banks are telling them, be patient. And I think to some extent, markets need to listen. Fed Chair Jerome Powell and Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen make their first joint appearance on the Hill, soothing recovery and valuation worries. In an environment where asset prices are high, that what's important is for regulators to make sure that the financial sector is resilient. U.S. stocks slide on the one-year anniversary of the bull market amid renewed concern about the global recovery while new virus cases rise in the States and across much of Europe. The EU prepares to tighten vaccine export rules amid the supply spat with the UK and AstraZeneca, as the vaccine maker says it will provide more US trial data within 48 hours after questions over its efficacy numbers. And Intel unveils plans to spend billions on U.S. chip plants, challenging Asia's dominance and sending shares in Taiwan's TSMC lower. Take a look at some of this red that flashed up on U.S. markets. A huge focus on Janet Yellen and what she had to say about the recovery and also Jay Powell. But markets are just showing some nervousness at this point around the rise in virus infections. The United States, parts of Europe that have had to go back into lockdown. And that's rattling this rotation trade that's been unfolding on the back of recovery hopes with the vaccine rollout. And you can see uh, pulling back right across the board in various parts from the Dow, the S&P to the NASDAQ and a number of various stocks too. And market segments are having an impact. Boeing, some of the big airline names, for instance, are negative. Apple, one of the stocks that had bounced uh, in earlier sessions are driving the markets higher. That had a big impact on the S&P 500 and Intel in session for the Nasdaq. So very mixed in terms of some of the players driving the markets yesterday. But March 23 does mark the one-year anniversary since the low of that uh, bull market, the trough that we've witnessed on uh, many of these uh, trades. And you can see this is how the charts have played out uh, from March 23rd last year. It's been a very strong recovery, taking uh, less than five months for the index to climb above its February 19 record. And then, as we know, it's kept on going. But uh, the market just showing a little bit of fatigue in that trade yesterday after what has been an incredible journey for a lot of investors. Uh, a quick look at some of those big U.S. travel stocks uh, that were under pressure in session yesterday. A bigger American Airlines stocks, 6.5% uh, off for American Airlines itself. United down 6.8% and to Norwegian Carnival, those uh, stocks reversing in the cruise ship business. Uh, Treasuries, uh, this has been part of the mix for a lot of investors uh, and we continue to hug that 1.6 level. We're not marching higher at this point. It's just some of that uh, rotation, that uh, recovery trade that has been very supportive of the yield story 
and inflation pricing into the markets has just come off a little bit, uh, given some of these concerns about the third wave that has been unfolding. Quick look at oil. Uh, that has been one component of the market that has showed uh, a fairly strong wobble. We saw that in session yesterday, and uh, this is a bit of a recovery off some of those levels that we witnessed. For instance, WTI was down 6.2 roughly percent by the end of the trading session, breaking a two-day losing streak yesterday. Brent falling almost 6%. So slight pickup uh, from those uh, fairly strong selling percentages yesterday. Asian markets today, as uh, they pick on up on that negative lead from Wall Street, you can see rough old session playing up for Hong Kong. The market there down two and a, a quarter percent. Japanese stocks are shedding close to 600 odd points or more than 2% as well. More cautious though across some of these other markets, uh, for instance, the Cosby only off four tenths of a percent and uh, the Australian market, in fact, trading higher. So the red concentrated around those two markets and you've got more modest levels uh, around this recovery rotation, a story for South Korea and Australia. A quick look at the opening calls. Uh, it was a fairly weak session for the Stocks Europe 600 yesterday, down two-tenths of a percent, a second negative session. In fact, we were deeper on the lows at some points uh, during that trading session. FTSE was down four-tenths of a percent. Similar-sized losses, too, for the French market yesterday. And you can see we look to be giving back more territory today. So it's a, a cautious indication before we count down to that start of the session. Steve, good morning to you. Yeah, morning, Karen. Yeah, and I think we're going to discuss this throughout the rest of the show. But I, I've been trying to work out, is it about concerns about lockdowns or is it about US federal policy uh, and fiscal policy going forward? And I think it's a bit of both as well. Very interesting. By the way, for all those oil bulls out there, and I think you, you create a very good case for the bull market, we're only 5% away from, from bear market territory, which seems extraordinary, doesn't it? Considering we're at just 15% uh, off our highs. Anyway, Janet Yellen, I think, is saying confusing things at the moment, depending on her audience. So don't forget, she's been saying in her pre-prepared remarks to testimony that we could have full employment next year, okay? Next year, we could have full employment in the US. But she also warned that the US economy is still in crisis, which is extraordinary, isn't it? Despite the support for uh, a massive $1.9 trillion stimulus package. Speaking of a joint House testimony with the Fed Chair Jerome Powell, Yellen also said she's not worried about the heavy fiscal spending and how it will impact price stability. Asset valuations are elevated by historical metrics. There's um, also, um, also belief that uh, with vaccinations proceeding at a rapid pace, that the economy will be able to get back um, on track. And as Karen was saying, the inflation threat, well, there is no inflation threat if you listen to the establishment as well, including Fed Chair Jerome Powell. He said he does not think the fresh stimulus will pose a long-term threat to inflation and that any price rises, yeah, you might have heard this script before, will be temporary. We're strongly committed to our uh, our price stability mandate, which is, you know, along with our maximum employment uh, mandate, those are the two mandates that you've essentially given us. Our best view is that these, uh, the effect on inflation will be neither particularly large nor persistent. And part of that just is that we've been living in a world of strong disinflationary pressures around the world, really, for a quarter of a century.
more monetary and fiscal support is needed to tackle the pandemic. This from Augustine Carstens, the head of the Bank of International Settlements. In an exclusive CNBC interview, Carstens praised the response of central banks and discussed rate normalisation. Well, Germana conducted the interview and joins us with more on the story. And I think um, it's the rate normalisation aspect of this story, Germana, uh, that'll get a lot of attention from investors. How appropriate does Augustus Carstens feel current interest rates are? Mm. Well, that's a million dollar question, isn't it? Uh, I, I did get the chance to speak to Augustine Custerns yesterday on the sidelines of their BIS Innovation Summit. You may have heard others uh, speak at the summit the last couple of days. They had Powell there only yesterday, the day before that, they had uh, Christine Lagarde, Jens Weidmann. So there's been a lot of uh, central bankers communing at the Innovation Summit. And of course, it is worth bearing in mind that uh, yesterday also coincided with one year of lockdown in the UK, but also more than one year since the pandemic started, which thrust central banks right into the spotlight. Uh, they had to come up with uh, different, different tools that hadn't been trialed before. They had to cut interest rates. They had to introduce swap lines. Some of them re-entered back into quantitative easing. So uh, the reaction from the central bank community was very swift and very fast. But I started off the interview by asking Mr. Carstens what the biggest lesson from the last 12 months was. Let's take a listen. We learned our lessons in the great financial crisis from the point of view that uh, when this type of crisis hit, uh, you have to act uh, quickly and uh, with massive force. I think that uh, the conditions that the actions of central banks established uh, in, in just in the immediate aftermath of the eruption of the pandemic uh, has been very, very effective uh, to limit uh, more than anything the, the loss of economic activity, uh, the, the death of uh, small, medium-sized businesses uh, to protect employment uh, and so on. And then uh, this impulse got an additional one coming from uh, fiscal, uh, uh, fiscal actions and also from prudential and regulatory actions. Uh, uh, the support is still there and should continue because we still uh, have huge uncertainty related to, to, to the pandemic. Here in Europe, we are in the, in the midst of a third wave and uh, therefore it still will, will need some time to go. Uh, at the same time, uh, we need to be very vigilant uh, about the side effects of some, some of these policies. And uh, of course, that is what central bankers are doing right now. Well, one of the other big features of the pandemic is there's been an explosion in terms of growth, both at a sovereign level and at the corporate level. Observers of the central banking community say that this puts central banks in a very tight position because the second they want to start thinking about hiking interest rates, that could have knock-on effects for debt serviceability. What do you say to that? Well, I mean, it certainly it will it 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 will be a period uh, where uh, uh, I would say. Uh, very thoughtful measures will need to be implemented. Uh, uh, I think I think that the most important thing that when the process of normalization starts, and even before as it is now, uh, central banks need to to communicate very clearly what their intentions are, 
and 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 really to spell out what is uh, what what is the reaction function reaction functions to current events and i think that uh, the many many central banks uh, pretty much all of them uh, have been going out of their way to explain how do they see the scene uh, what are they waiting for and uh, of course there is always this tension that financial markets uh, want to anticipate events uh, but in this case uh, what central banks are telling them be patient and I think to some extent markets need to listen. Uh, so that uh, probably answers your question there, Jeff, about uh, what he has to say about low interest rates, but also ties into a topic I know Steve is very keen on, which is uh, the sheer amount of uh, gr growth in debt we've seen both at a corporate and a sovereign level, uh, a huge overhang of debt even before the pandemic started, which kind of puts the central banks in a tricky position if they ever do want to start normalizing. And what Mr. Carstens is saying there is uh, essentially they need to be very clear with their reaction functions and the market it needs to understand the dynamics that will get them on a tightening path. But so far, the messaging, as we know from the central bank community, is that they are going to stay accommodative. Whether they're kicking the can down the road in the future, obviously, that is a big macro question. But uh, I started off by saying that we spoke on the sidelines of this BIS Innovation Summit. So the actual title of the summit this year is How Central Banks Can Innovate in a digital age. So let's not forget as well that there's plenty going on in the central bank community in terms of digital currencies, whether it's uh, reg tech, fintech, cybersecurity. So another question that I posed to Mr. Carstens was how they're viewing the, the digital currency landscape right now. You've got a plethora of private uh, cyber coins, you've got stable coins coming up, and you've also got central banks considering their own central bank digital currencies. So I asked him whether they see it as an opportunity or a challenge. Let's take a listen. I don't see any dominance of uh, cyber currencies. They're new, they're innovative, uh, they're serving a purpose more than anything, particular cyber currencies uh, as a, a speculative uh, vehicle. Uh, it helps, you could, could claim that it helps diversification and so on, but uh, they really do not have made any inroads in terms of uh, uh, working as money. Uh, stable coins also have some lim limited applications and uh, they have their own role for very specific purposes. Therefore, I don't see any any challenge, I would say, to sovereign uh, sovereign money uh, coming from these privately used uh, currencies. Do you think there needs to be more regulation in the private cryptocurrency space, though? Yeah, because uh, uh, to a large extent, uh, they're used to do some arbitrage. Uh, uh, or, or to to circumvent uh, some some uh, regulations. I mean, AML CFT, for example, is completely well. It's quite absent in many applications of uh, some cyber cyber currencies. Uh, there are there are aspects also of reliability of the systems in terms of investor protection. I think that uh, we need to move forward. Uh, also, some some stable coins, if if they were going to be applied massively, uh, you know, uh, uh, the issue of uh, what is backing those currencies is of the essence, and uh, we have uh, uh, many many 
many, many episodes in the history of finance where something that is supposed to be completely backed, at, at the end, it doesn't end up being fully backed. Uh, therefore, uh, I think, yes, uh, we need to work on regulation uh, so that uh, these, uh, these instruments are fit for purpose. Well, going back to the subject of central bank digital currencies, there are many central banks out there looking uh, and, and evaluating the benefits of introducing one. China have already started a pilot scheme of the EU yuan. Do you think it matters which central bank gets to issue a central bank digital currency first? Is there a, a, a war in terms of timing going on? I don't think so. I mean, I think uh, this is, le, 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 let's have this very clear. A, a central bank uh, will uh, put, uh, will issue central bank digital currencies in particular for retail purposes uh, uh, if it makes sense at, uh, for their domestic economy. Obviously, we need to, to uh, think about the international ramifications of this. Uh, we, we need to make sure that we can put together a network of convertible CBDCs and uh, that this helps us for cross-border payments. But initially, a central bank will make up a decision if it makes sense or not for their own purposes. So a hot topic there, central bank digital currencies, and obviously the BIS have done a lot of work on the topic, mostly spearheaded by a former ECB member, Mr. Carre. That's Mr. Carson's talking about also the need for further regulation in the private cryptocurrency space. Uh, but that pretty much wraps up uh, the conversation that we had, but we'll be playing more of the interview throughout the rest of Squawk Box, guys. Jamana, thank you very much for bringing us that interview and breaking down for us. Coming up on the show, Brussels prepares to allow European nations more control to block vaccine exports as tensions run high ahead of the leaders' summit later this week. And if you can't get enough Augustine Carstens, uh, make a point of going to the podcast where you can hear more about his calls for further fiscal and monetary support. We'll be right back. Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on CNBC.com. AstraZeneca has pledged to share the results from its latest vaccine trial with U.S. health authorities within the next 48 hours. This after the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases said the pharma giant may have submitted outdated data to American regulators. AstraZeneca added that it had reviewed the preliminary assessment of its primary analysis, with the results remaining consistent with the interim data. Uh, the European Commission will reportedly expand its controls to block vaccine exports amid an ongoing row with the UK. The proposals, which are set to be announced later today, could also impact the raw materials that make up 
vaccines. European leaders are due to talk about the measures at a virtual summit this Thursday. Meanwhile, UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson has said he remains optimistic a solution will be found. We'll continue to work with uh, European partners to, uh, to, to deliver uh, the vaccine rollout. Uh, what I can say is uh, that we in this country uh, don't believe in, uh, in blockades. Uh, of any kind uh, of, uh, of, of vaccines or vaccine uh, material, uh, not something that this country would uh, dream of, uh, of engaging in. Uh, and I'm uh, encouraged by some of the things I've heard uh, from the continent uh, in the same sense. Uh, Boris Johnson there, and we know that he's done a series of calls with European leaders over the last week to try and clarify exactly what the intentions are at an EU level. And I, I'm still a bit confused. As much as I read into this story, I still cannot find any clarity around the argument that exports are being blocked one way or the other at a company level companies seem to be going about their business and if there is a lack of uh, supply of astra vaccine at the moment it just appears to be this is about a manufacturing deficit but the other bit that i still can't get my head around is the fact that there are millions of unused astra vaccines lying uh, available in these uh, european countries that are part of the group that apparently uh, uh, Ursula von der Leyen is championing that are being left behind. So again, I'm just a, a little bit puzzled as to where this is going. And I hope that this is not a political play to try and excuse incompetence. But as you look at this, it's difficult to come away with the, uh, the uh, anything other than the view that this is about politics and not really about supply chains. Well, uh, you can understand why there's some spin doctoring going on at this point. You've got countries effectively going back into lockdown. I think many had hoped that the second wave and the lockdowns we've been through over Christmas and into 2021 might be the worst of it and it would be behind us. But that's simply not been the case because of the slow vaccine rollout. So amid all the finger pointing, uh, we've now got this noise around the, the vaccine export story. But I still think that it's early days when it comes to vaccines. Uh, this is, you know, the, the first jabs that are being administered. And I, I think it's a, a wake up call to countries to build out their own manufacturing facilities. So you're not beholden to other countries and waiting for those vaccines to arrive down the track. Uh, uh, the other point, too, is that I think around the AstraZeneca vaccine, we're waiting for answers still and just digging into some of the weeds. It did look as though this had been a, a very fast process, which we know getting that vaccine to market. And perhaps that's why there were some hurdles about the, the sort of data that AstraZeneca thought that they could use, uh, interim data versus primary data that the safety board thought they might have been using. So it might just be down to this is an unusual event because of the speed in executing on these emergency vaccines, Steve. Yeah, I think there isn't much more we can add, is there? Let's face it, this conversation has been going on for a long while. I mean, just a couple of points. And again, like you guys, I'm just reading extensively, trying to get to the bottom of these stories. As far as the US concerns are, are, are concerned, why has this gone public? Uh, apparently, you know, a lot of what is going on now in public between the US regulatory authorities and AstraZeneca is normally done behind the scenes. And uh, as one piece of copy I was reading uh, was saying, surely it would be too crass to say there is a form of protectionism going on here uh, regarding the Moderna and the Pfizer drugs, which, of course, uh, are, are US-based drugs and a lot more expensive than AstraZeneca as well. So if it is too crass, we'll just park that idea over there. But it is interesting that um, there is a public spat going on once again uh, about this drug, which was, of course, produced in Oxford, amongst other places, uh, when a time when 
normally this stuff is done behind the scenes of what I understand. Again, we're all learning here as well. The second point is there are tens of millions of these drugs, the AstraZeneca one, being administered uh, around the world at the moment as well. Surely the data would show if there was a massive problem with this one and the fact that over 10 million have been put out in the United Kingdom, millions elsewhere around the world as well. If there was a, an extensive problem with this drug, it would surely be coming through now rather than actually the opposite coming through, which in the countries that have successful rollouts of this and other drugs as well, their mortality rates, their hospitalization rates, their people in ICU, rates have all gone down as well. In fact, total infection rates have gone down as well. So the efficacy of this drug appears to be in the proof of the pudding of those tens of millions rather than these small studies going on uh, around the world. And, and the last point I want to raise is, is kind of where you went with this, Karen, as well. You said clearly countries have to, or worse the effect, have to improve their domestic supply chains and build up their own capacity. And I think you're 100% right. So why is a supranational body, the EU, uh, in charge of all this when, as you say, it's countries that should be doing this as well? I have to say, despite what Valdis Dombrovskis had to say to this show yesterday, I think the EU has proved itself, I beg your pardon, the European Commission has proved itself woeful in the organisation, the procurement, the investment, the rollout of these drugs as well. I think you're right. I think countries are soon realising they need to do it domestically or working with other countries. The supranational body is flailing. Let's be honest about it. Uh, let's move on. Uh, we'll come back to this uh, a little later on in the programme, inevitably, as we focus on these actions. And I should just point out, we're going to talk to the uh, Foreign Minister of Spain a little later on in the programme as well. So we'll get a view... Uh, from within the body about what has taken place. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken has said Washington will work with NATO to counter major geopolitical challenges, especially from Russia and China. He spent two days in Brussels with NATO members in an effort to affirm the Biden administration's commitment to the alliance and mend a fractured relationship. We will stand resolutely uh, against uh, Russian aggression and other uh, actions that try to undermine uh, our alliance, and I think that uh, that approach is exactly where uh, where NATO is as well. And similarly, uh, we have to, and we will, uh, I believe, make sure that NATO is also focused on some of the challenges that China poses to the uh, rules-based international uh, international order. That is part of the 2030 vision as well. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to CNBC.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show weekdays on CNBC.